Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, listeners. How are you doing? Welcome back to the podcast. Great to be talking to you again. It's always good to be talking to the Lepsters on Luke's English Podcast. Uh, I hope you're doing well today. Uh, so let me tell you about, uh, this episode number, is this number 743? I think it is. Okay. So let me tell you all about it. In this episode, I'm talking to author Natasha V. Broody, who has written a book which aims to help learners of English find the right tone in their speaking and writing. Tone is something which is very much affected by culture and often relates to things like being direct indirect, formal, informal, and in English, things like the use of modal verbs and phrasal verbs, and just generally the way you put things, like the way you ask for things, the way you give information, the way you present yourself in emails and stuff like that, whether it's all done in a certain way, you know, just uh, different levels of politeness and formality, directness and indirectness, and so on. In English, the general tone is often quite friendly but indirect and polite. And this can sometimes cause problems for English speakers coming from different places where codes of politeness or professionalism are different. And this does affect the way in which people construct their sentences, for example, making polite requests and things like that. Now, uh, Natasha, uh, the author of this book, has uh, worked as an English teacher and also has worked in international contexts for the UN and she has direct experience of observing people communicating in English and not quite getting the tone right. So in her book, which is called Give Me Tea, Please, Practical Ingredients for Tasteful Language, she lays out a sort of style guide with theory, practical tips, and a glossary of defined vocabulary at the back. And it sounds like a, an interesting book, which could be a worthwhile read for many of my listeners. So I thought it would be good to chat with Natasha a little bit and explore some of the ideas presented in her book. Give Me Tea, Please, uh, Practical Ingredients for Tasteful Language, is currently available on Amazon. But from the 24th of September, so that's that's already happened, hasn't it? The 24th of September. So in fact, now it's available from pretty much any place you can get books, I think, but certainly on Amazon. Okay. Uh, so anyway, give me tea, please. That's the book. Natasha V. Broody is the guest. She's the person who wrote it. So I, I will now uh, let you sort of like, you know, actually listen to the conversation. So let's meet uh, Natasha Broody to find out some of those practical tips for tasteful language that are promised in her book. Okay, and I will talk to you a little bit more at the end of the episode, at the end of this conversation. But uh, now let's get started with the conversation. And here we go. Hello, we're talking about language. Sit down, let's have a chat. Hmm? A bit of a chat, sir. A bit of a chat, yes, Roger, just a bit of a chat. <laughs> what about, sir? About English as a global language. This is a conversation. Yes. I would like to talk to you. Okay, let's talk. Let's have a quick conversation, huh? What do you think? That's what we're going to do. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a conversation about language. Hello, Natasha. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Luke, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. How's your day going so far? It just started. I'm in the States. I'm on the, uh, the East, West, the West Coast <laughs> of the States. Gotta get my mind around geography. So yeah. it's early in the morning. It's around 9 a.m. I, I literally just woke up maybe half an hour to get ready for uh, this interview. So my day is just starting. Have you had coffee yet? 
nothing. I usually have my tea and I, and I, and I don't have it yet, but, uh, I will. Wow. So it's a pre tea podcast. It is. Uh, dear Lord God, what's going to come? <laughs> I know. The, the, the things you have to do to promote your work. Really. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's very nice to be speaking to you. Now, I'm going to ask you about uh, your book um, in this conversation, but I thought that before I do that, it might be nice to get to know you a little bit beforehand. So, you know, can you tell us a few things about yourself? Like, you know, basically, where are you from? Where are you based now? What do you do? You know, the the usual. I'll try to make it brief. Um, I was originally born in Texas and grew up in uh, Florida, where I am right now. And that journey took me to New York, where when I, let's see, in 2012, I started working for uh, the British government for the United Nations. And working within the UN system allowed me to explore and expand with the United Nations Development Program and also with UNESCO. Um, My latest job being this year where I worked as a communications consultant on the Freedom of Expression Unit. So from right before I had that that last job earlier this year, in pre-COVID time, Around 2017, I started to take um, a new direction with my career to focus on language acquisition, to learn languages. And that was Russian, Spanish, French and German. That was the goal. And the goal from that would be to begin using those language skills as a humanitarian officer, ideally within um, Senegal. So that was the major plan pre-COVID. Wow. (laughs) That's one hell of a plan. (laughs) It sounds extreme. Um, I had it all worked out. I had it. I was living in Moscow for about two years or maybe a little shy of two years Um, and then I've switched into, uh, into Paris where I was living for two years as where as well, and really just trying to improve my language skills. COVID happened, <laughs> like it did for everyone else. And so I ended up cutting my trip short to return back to the US. How many languages was it that you were hoping to learn? Four. I was hoping to learn four languages. Uh, a bit ambitious, I know. Um, but that's the way I roll. Did I learn all four languages? Absolutely not. And do I speak these languages fluently? Absolutely not. But the mm-hmm. goal, I think, as we know as language learners, um, is to begin speaking and using the language as much, as much as possible. And that is why I chose to move to the regions of my target language to have 24-7 access to listening, reading, speaking, and writing the language on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. What was your approach to uh, learning the languages? The approach that I am still using that I think is the best approach. Um, let me let me rephrase that. I think mm-hmm. it's the best approach depending on how you learn. This is the most important aspect, I think, when you're doing a language. I'm a very kinesthetic learner. Um, and that that means for the language learners here, the English language learners here, that I need to be physically involved with whatever kind of new left brain or right brain concept that I want to learn. I have to touch it. I have to see it. I have to work in it. I have to speak it. I have to be physically involved. So once I understood that about how I learned, what I began to do is I began to do a lot of um, uh, building very simple sentences, one subject, one verb, one object. And learning how to write grammatically accurately, simple sentences, allow me to have quite a large sentence vocabulary for each of the languages, for Russian and for French. Those were the two that I got in. And I have a previous background in Spanish, so that was, that's the reason that one was kind of last on the table. But by approaching it that way, I was able to begin building up, you know, maybe around a pre-intermediate level speaking level. And I realized that if I took that approach and began working with 
really friends, finding a language speaking community, I could find ways to begin exercising verbally my one sentence, one subject, one verb, one object approach. It's helped a lot. The parts where I suffer the most, especially with French, not so much Russian, I think, is the, the, the accent and the pronunciation. Um, it's just very difficult for me to, to, to speak it accurately and not sound like an idiot while I'm speaking, but it's quite fun. I actually find it fun. So it doesn't, it's not so bad, but I would say that approach has helped me the most to just to live in these countries for, you know, a couple of years and, and survive. Which one is more difficult to pronounce? Um, is it Russian or French? Honestly, I think it's French. <laughs> But that could be because when I was in New York um, working for British government at the UN, I was also doing language training in Russian. So I had a good three, three, maybe even four years uh, prior to my arrival in Russia, just learning how to pronounce these words. Those Three to four years were difficult. It took me two years to learn how to say Zdrasvite, which is hello in Russian. Two years to just yeah. say it where a Russian would understand what it is that I've said. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but again, it's like the practice, the, the constant repetition to retrain and reprogram the muscles in your mouth to move and to pronounce the language in a way that could be understood. So I think at this stage, um, it's French. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So, so your project, yes, to learn four languages and then ultimately to work in uh, humanitarian aid in, um, is, was that right? In, um, where Dakar, was it? Which, Senegal. Yeah, Dakar, in Senegal. Senegal. Yeah. Dakar. Right. Okay. Uh, but then COVID happened. So did you actually manage to get out there to uh, Senegal? No, I didn't. Um, I have not lost that aspiration. Uh, I think when this COVID nightmare is over, I'm probably going to pick it up and just go straight, straight down there. Um, mm -hmm. since I've been practicing French for a little bit now. Um, but no, COVID has really flipped the world, hasn't it? So yeah. <laughs> no, not yet. So how did the book come into it then? Uh, when, yeah, when did so the from? book, so living in the regions of my target language, I did, um, I taught English, I taught business English to professionals. And while I was teaching them, I realized that there were really critical mistakes that they were making in their professional English communication skills and correspondence. So I began like writing notes, verbal, uh, writing notes and then giving verbal uh, advice to, you know, kind of tweak and to correct not just the grammar, but the, the tone and the way that the language was coming out. Mm -hmm. And then I realized if I keep doing this verbally, you know, I, I might as well just write a book. Why not write a book? So I started my book, Give Me Tea, Please, in 2018. And I was in Russia at that time. And I had maybe like, I think probably the first half of the book written by the time I had moved on to Paris and France. Um, what I was realizing and what I was seeing was that uh, my clients were quite engaged in the way that I wrote. They found it clear. They found it under, you know, they could understand it, la, 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 la. So I decided to kind of structure this book in a way that I hadn't seen from the business English books I was given to use and began finding online. I just structuring it in a way that seemed completely different, which I can get into a little bit later, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, so that is pretty much how the book started to form. Um, but I didn't finish the book again. COVID just sucked the life out of some <laughs> energy, uh, energy for some projects. So when I got back to the States, um, I, I decided to take it uh, quite seriously and to finish it, publish it and, you know, tell my clients about it and tell others about it, that it's done mm -hmm. and it's an available resource. Okay. So, so the book is called Give Me Tea, Please. Yes. Right. Now, could, could you explain the title of the book and perhaps tell us the story which is attached to it? Yes, indeed. Um, so the book title is called Give Me Tea, Please. Subtitle, Practical Ingredients for Tasteful Language. 
And the title really came about due to my experience, my, my first few, I think it's fair to say months in Moscow, where I was trying again to just use the language immediately and speak very small, short, simple sentences. My accent was still pretty bad. And so I was I was trying to order tea, um, really cautious about trying to be polite. And in response, the Russian community was really, really patient, especially in the service community. And so I would always get stopped like, no, I don't know. I don't know what you're saying. Like there, there would always be these kind of strange, like, I really don't know what you're saying. Yeah. And so one time uh, a woman had told me she speaks English when I was ordering tea. And so I said, oh, well, how do I do this? How do I order tea in Russian? And she said, you can just say, that's fine. Everyone understands it. It's perfectly fine. You, 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 won't, you won't get chocolate milk if you said something like that. So oh. I began using that phrase, translating the phrase, and really thinking about it. The direct translation for that phrase is, give me tea, please. Now, you and I as native English speakers know that if you were to walk up to as any service professional, any person even, and say, give me tea, please, even your friends, it is still very abrupt. The intonation behind these words are too abrupt. And yeah. I wanted to be able to find a, a, a more polite way to do it. I figured, oh, maybe she thinks, oh, she's learning. She's a foreigner. Let's just give her the very basics so she can communicate. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I researched the polite version, which I thought would be, I would like to have a tea, please. Something around like that. Yeah. Again, my accent, very bad. <laughs> it might even still be a little weird. So I'm thinking that I've learned, you know, the polite version. I'm thinking that I've nailed it. I go back into, you know, restaurants and cafes and I try using this polite version. And again, the blank stares of, Miss, I have no idea what you're saying. So mm. I would switch into the simple form that I was taught, you know, diet chai pajalasa. And then I would always get my tea. So that's really how the title came about. This give me tea, please. It's, it's, it's too abrupt for, for the etiquette in English standards, but in other languages, it may be perfectly fine. So how do you translate tone when tone is not necessarily a written language? Yes, absolutely. That, there's so much packed into the difference between give me tea, please, and I would like some tea. Yes. So much packed into that. I mean, I th I th I've heard of theories about things like uh, high and low context cultures, and that may have something to do with it. Uh, but um, certainly the thing about saying I would like some tea is that it's not a request and it's not a question. Exactly. It's just a statement of like, I, I, I would like some tea. And you expect the other person to interpret what that means, which exactly. basically means I would like some tea means, can you give me some tea, please? Uh, and so I guess in some cultures, that's indirect and kind of stupid. It's like, if you want tea, just ask for tea. Exactly. So say, me tea, please. You said please. That's polite, isn't it? What more do you want? Exactly. Yeah? Exactly that. Okay. Okay. So, so in investigating this thing about, you know, how do I actually politely ask for tea? You, you kind of uncovered uh, this kind of cultural difference in terms of tone and how it's used in different languages and stuff like that. And so as a teacher of English or a trainer in, you know, for, for people learning English, uh, has that come into your teaching a lot then talking about, uh, tone and, um, and, and the importance of getting it right? Yeah, I think so. Not so much, um, not so much teaching, uh, for example, uh, like body language and the tone that comes off with body, body language, not so much that. Um, I think what, what usually kind of transpires in the business English courses, courses I've taught in the past is this, it's, it's really a system, it's finding a system designed specifically for each client, each person who has, is learning business English finding a system that works well with the English that they know already. So even if they have a low level of English, um, sometimes it's around A2, like an upper elementary kind of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, or if they're fully advanced, uh, 
based on how your culture it expresses language in terms of commands and and professional communication how do we how do we change that to ensure that for english communication working national clients across the globe how do we ensure that you're always going to be communicating not only what you want or you need to provide but to do it in a mm-hmm. way that will not cause offense or will not raise an eyebrow or especially with written language where you can't hear tone how do you ensure that it is visibly professional so that would be the, the more of the target and then working within that framework we look at the differences between what's the impact of using phrasal verbs versus using um using uh a, a phrase or expression that uh is more formal as we know phrasal verbs are used for more informal language and then you have verbs excuse me you have verbs that um are you you find more in professional communication um how do we ensure that uh when we're making co- requests or demands of others that we always uh are presented in a way that shows politeness well we have modals that will help us with that so you can really focus on using polite modals and it will give you an extra added bonus to present yourself as professionally as possible so i would say that would be the framework and the structure that i would usually use with my clients mhm um what um so how how do people know then how do we know what the right tone is you know because a russian person let's say coming to let's say coming to london uh, as i've seen many times actually because i used to live there work there and i would take my students to the pub and stuff and it would be like one beer please mm-hmm. or even just one one guinness yeah. you know it's it's not even the full full you know no no please or anything just one guinness yeah, one beer yeah um so how do and you know obviously it should be uh excuse me can i have a pint of guinness please you know that's what it should be but h- how do people know then what the right tone is and and what you know what sort of language codes they should be it's using it's a fair question especially if you're in a region of the world where i mean you can hear this podcast but you might not be able to travel outside of your country i've heard it many times um how would you be able to know i say a lot of it a lot of it is informed by your own culture i don't think there are rude cultures out there in 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 a sense um mm-hmm. per se mm-hmm. so i think a lot of that is already informed by your own cultural practices whether you you don't practice being polite on a day-to-day basis or whether you do practice being polite on a day-to-day <laughs> basis for my book focusing specifically for just communicating in business environments What I did was in the second part of the book, well let me re- explain it from the first. Like I said earlier before, I was very conscientious about how I wrote this book. The first part, part 1 is all about theories. It's about the theoretical construction behind formal, informal, polite and impolite language. The second part of the book takes those theories and puts them into practice. I did that by essentially stating that there are three basic forms of communication. When you want something, when you have to communicate or provide information, and when you have to deal with very serious matters like contracts or money matters. So based on those three mm-hmm. basic types of communication, I went into depth about you when you when you want something you should be formal and indirect if possible when you want to provide information use a mixture of formal language and direct and indirect language a mixture of mm-hmm. it when you're doing contract matters my suggestion is to be formal and direct and i find that the language the the tonal aspect that is the most difficult to understand is what is professional direct language so i really take time in the book to suss out these questions and to write it and to present the information in a way that is simple practical and very highly structured so you can follow along and write your own notes about how you communicate and how you can pull these suggestions into your communication style. Mm, that's great. And certainly in English for people who are out there learning English and wondering um 
of all the different codes. I mean, we talk of formal and informal and neutral and so on. I would say for, for most um, everyday business and or professional uh, communication, it's going to be a sort of in uh, sorry a sort of neutral uh, style, which kind of borrows bits of the indirectness and for, uh, from formal language and bits of the friendliness from informal language. And it sort of like rides the line, um, that sort of neutral tone. But within that, you're going to get the polite requests yeah. and you're going to get the, the politeness is built in. So, I mean, you know, you're, you're, there aren't that many different versions. It's basically this kind of standard professional politeness, uh, which you can, you know, learn from lots of those business English books and, and, and so on. Exactly. Uh, but it's a question of just like trying to think within that language framework and trying to, I mean, a lot of, I think a lot of people um, coming from different language contexts will feel uncomfortable being as almost apologetic and indirect mm -hmm. as we all are in English. I mean, I, my wife is French and sometimes she doesn't understand, like her English is very good, but she doesn't realize or it doesn't come naturally to her to be as in uh, as, as indirect as I might mm -hmm. be, you know, when dealing with, I don't know, people in a service situation in, in mm -hmm. England. Um, so it's just a question of like trying to, you know, keep that in mind that you're kind of thinking in, in, another, uh, in another way as well as using different words. I can raise a point to that, that, that applies to both mm -hmm. my experience in, in France and in Russia. I had this uh, French client who I just, I just adored him. He had this desire to write these very long, poetically constructed kind of emails for business communication. I mean, these were beautiful. You could like put these emails on display for, you know, a poetry reading. It was very intricate with all these different um, uh, attempts to be complex in the sentence structure. But his speaking level and his written level was really only at an intermediate level. So there were so many grammar errors that he was missing that was making the, the, the comprehension behind what he was trying to do lost. And it would be really simple things, for example, like stating that, you know, all colleagues should on Friday, you know, go to the X room of the office for a meeting. Something very simple, but his email constructions were like, like, I don't know. I would think maybe I, I always have this trick with uh, my intermediate level clients where I ask them to count the number of words in their sentence after they write them. And his sentences would have like 20 to 30 words just to ask oh. or, or ask or communicate something very simple. So I remember think I remember learning and being in French culture that, you know, within French culture, it is part of the culture to, to, to use language as beautifully as possible. I mean, French is a beautiful language. So I could see how the translation from French into English was losing meaning. And then I would have to work with him to, to, to shorten up the sentences and to become more specific and, and at times more direct. So you, he would be able to get what he wants from a native English speaker or from uh, a, a speaker of English at the C1, C2 level and not, not lose his, uh, his meaning and communication within these emails. So that's one example of where too much indirectness and too much language, it was just not working. On the flip side of that, mm. in Russia, I had this one client who was, she was phenomenal. She, she did everything I taught her and told her and her English level just soared within months. One, when we got to this lesson about using, uh, structuring an email when you, uh, I think it's when you want something that this was, it was either when you want something or when you need to provide information. But I think this one for her was when you want something. I had taught her this lesson that I present in the book about how to uh, obtain better results when you want something by using modals and um, some etiquette practices in, email, in, in, in emails. And one of the major lines that I'm sure you might, you might agree with, with would be, 
when you're structuring a professional email, you don't just go straight into what you want. You usually say hi, or I hope this email finds you well, or it was great seeing you last Tuesday. Something that's, you know, positive and kind of starts the conversation. Mm-hmm. By Russian mm-hmm. client, she pretty much was saying what you had said ex- before, where she was like, why? What is, what is this for? We need, we're doing business. Come on. What is this whole, this is, this is crazy. But she came back to me the next week that I had taught her this and the smile on her face. She was like, Tasha, like I, I wrote something really kind first. And, and then I, I just kind of went into my email and the response that I got, it seemed happy. And I was just laughing because it's true. It's the, the tonality just changes when you're trying to communicate with someone specifically in English by using more kind of polite language or more soft language or more indirect ways. So that's two ways how you can see communication either being lost or communication enhancing when you try to, you know, follow if you're if you're working within an English speaking environment or you have to use English as the means for communication. When you when you align to etiquette practices that we use as native English speakers, you might find some improvement in the way that you are received. You go into details about different types of sentence, right? I mean, uh, you've got your four tonal categories um, and stuff like that. And then, then there's details of the different – you talk about a simple sentence, a compound sentence, and a complex sentence. Yes. So can you tell us about that? And, and does this relate to, like, choosing the right – tone as well yes so where i in i in the theoretical asp in the theoretical section part one for each of the four tonal categories i break it or at least i hope i've broken it down um quite clearly as to what makes x type of communication formal or informal or direct or indirect and at the end of each mm-hmm. of those sections i have a language review that will pull different grammatical terms that language learners may or may not know so that they have better understanding of what I was referring to in the previous sentences above. So when I have simple sentence, compound sentence, complex sentence, essentially there were sections within the the formal category where I was discussing formal category where I was suggesting mm. to uh, non-native English speakers who may not have a full grasp on the English language, who may be, you know, the low intermediate level or maybe upper, uh, the upper uh, elementary level, the upper beginning levels. And they want to still use English communication for work, for advancement or for whatever. So I, I break it down by saying, well, if this applies to you, use a simple sentence format where you have one subject one verb or one object or and one object. And that should be able to, at the very least, provide basic communication, basic understanding to the person that you're speaking to. I suggested for the same group, as well as those who are fully in the intermediate level, maybe even upper intermediate, if you still are receiving you know, the raised eyebrows or the question marks in your email or the I really I don't I still don't understand your communication, mm-hmm. this type of thing. If you're still receiving mm-hmm. uh, that response, however, you're also receiving acknowledgement that you're being clear. Go ahead and try doing compound sentences because a compound sentence <laughs> essentially is just taking one simple sentence using some type of conjunction like the word and or but. And then taking another simple sentence and putting it at the end. There you have your compound sentence. So you can begin to improve and to challenge yourself by lengthening your sentences so it doesn't feel so robotic or perfunctory. And then for the last, uh, the last part where I spoke about complex sentences, essentially I was saying if you're an upper intermediate speaker or you're at the C1, C2 level, go ahead and improve your language and communication by using a complex sentence. And at that time, they they usually know what a complex sentence is, where you have a simple sentence that's attached to um, usually some type of coordinating conjunction in order to uh, make longer sentences, show comparisons and contrast, um, and really kind of add some you know eloquence to the way that you speak. 
also at the at the back of your book you have a sort of a glossary don't you of, of defined terms because as you're reading the book some of the terms are in bold and then if you flip to the back you can find those words defined and, and stuff it's like a mini dictionary i do indeed cool. the, again one of the things that i saw missing from I was really tr I was really hoping to make this book quite a unique and enjoyable experience. At first, I said that, you know, it's broken into two parts. One is theoretical. One is practical. I haven't really seen that in business English textbooks. The second aspect highlights what you've just said, words in bold. So since this is an ebook, you have uh, words that are presented in bold type in bold typeface. And each of these words are words that I have seen used quite regularly in professional communication and even day-to-day -day communication. So my belief is that it should become part of every non-native English speaker's vocabulary, especially if you're in professional communication um, using words like, um, oh God, I put myself on the spot here, trying to think of a professional <laughs> word. Um, like Differences between like despite and in spite of and, and the other useful linking yeah, words. Uh, perfect but other, example. So yeah. instead of saying although and even though, which are pretty informal and used really for uh, verbal communication, you would use the word despite or in spite of, which in spite of is usually seen as little less formal than the word despite. That's a perfect example. Thanks, Luke. So, yes, we can go on something mm -hmm. like that. I, I've heard but the thing about that is that there's there's like different grammar to them, yeah. right? So although and despite them have the same role, but they they fit into sentences differently. So there's different structure involved, um, and yeah. So I guess your glossary at the back is going to be a useful way to build. I hope so. Well, I really do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So where can people actually? get a copy of the book if they so want to. So at the moment, it's exclusively on Amazon for, I think, 10 more days or maybe nine. On September 24th, that is when it will be launched on all platforms. Um, I'm even trying to establish some way where when someone has my my website, lifewiththebige.com, if you go to my website, you would be able to buy it directly from there. So September 24th is when it expands to everywhere, every platform that I can possibly have it distributed on. Okay. So give me tea, please, by Natasha V. Broody. You know what? Just before you go, I just wanted to ask you about your accent because um, we're always interested in accents and stuff uh, on this podcast. And so you're from the States. You said you were sort of born in Texas originally and uh, have, have lived in different parts of the country. But I, I don't know. I don't feel like you have a really strong sort of standard American accent. And in fact, sometimes it almost sounds a bit English. Have people ever commented on your accent? I get before? comments on it all the time. Favorable comments and very insulting comments. I'm actually British and English. Uh, a British, uh, I'm oh, sorry, American, American and British. Um, but I wasn't raised oh, really? in Britain. I've worked for British government for years. Um, my family is in Britain. Part of my family is in Britain. I spend a lot of my yeah. time in an international community, which strangely enough does not usually have many Americans, probably because of the nature of the UN and how it works and how it's structured. But mm -hmm. Russia and France aren't the only two countries that I've lived in. I've lived in New Zealand. I know that has had an impact um, on the way that I speak. Um, Russia, I've lived in France. Um, I've spent some time in Ghana. I've, it's at least 23 countries um, that I've either traveled to or have lived in uh, for a long period of time. So for me, I know I, it's weird because I cannot hear. I just hear me. But when, sometimes when I'm listening to something that's been recorded like this, I'll hear kind of like an English drawl and it will put me back when I was working <laughs> with the British government yeah. or recently. I mean, well, not recently. I, uh, I think it was last year. One of my best friends had said, uh, that sounds French. And he was referring to the way I had said professor. Apparently, I was like, professor or something like that, which had made sense because yeah. I was practicing this word so many times to get that <laughs> kind of thing from France. <laughs> so now my accent oh. is just a, mi a mixed mutt accent where it's, it's just from everything, I think. Every place I've lived, every language that I, I practice, especially with the accent, it's, it's, there's American in it. There will always be my American in it, but uh, it's probably no longer purely American. 
Yeah, so you sound American, and then sometimes you'll say something, and it's like, "Whoa, you've got an English accent." So the way you say "British," for example, you sound like you're from London. British. I honestly don't know. I just speak. <laughs> I literally just speak. Lord knows what it's going to sound like by the time I obtain my four languages. Oh, we are the sort of you know we are the sum. Oh, the our accent is the sum of all of our experiences, isn't it? Really, I suppose, and and, and all the communities that we accommodate to, and and all that sort of thing. So every every person's accent tells a story. It does indeed. I agree I with that very much. Okay. Right. Well, Natasha, thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, good luck thank with the you. book. Uh, I wonder if any of, my, any of my listeners will be going out to, to grab I a copy. So. Yes, I think it would be a good idea. Okay. Well, listeners, if you do get the book and you enjoy reading it, then uh, why not leave a, a review on Amazon? That always Indeed. helps. Thank you very that would much. Be a nice Please leave the reviews. <laughs> They're essential, thank aren't they? Yeah. Luke, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, have a lovely day. I'll, you can have tea <laughs> I now. I can indeed. I'll make my pot of tea. So that was Natasha V. Broody talking about her book, Give Me Tea, Please. Practical, what was it? Practical tips for tasteful language. It's available from all good bookstores. So go ahead and pick up a copy and a coffee. <laughs> I, nearly, I nearly said coffee. Go ahead and pick up a coffee and a copy of the book. And if you like it, I mean, if you like the book, then you can leave a review on Amazon. And if you like the coffee, you can leave a review for that too somewhere. But anyway, uh, if you fancy it, get a copy of the book. And if you like it, uh, leave a nice review. That would be very uh, helpful. Thanks again to Natasha for her contribution in this episode. Listeners, I, I seriously hope that you found this interesting and uh, stimulating and all those other good things. Uh, if you've got comments, you know, if you've got thoughts in your head, do you have thoughts in your head? I hope so. Um, maybe maybe thoughts like, oh, I'd like some cake. I don't know what thoughts you have in your head. Maybe thoughts relating to the conversation that uh, you heard in this episode. Feel free to leave them in the comments section. That would be very good. Either on my website, teacherluke.co.uk, and find the page for this episode and leave your comment there. Or do it on YouTube if you're listening on YouTube. Hello, YouTube people. Hello, website people. Hello, podcast people. It's all good in Lepland. Um, and uh, so that is ba- that's kind of the end of this episode. I thought that I would have a short ramble at the end, okay, and then also play a song at the end. So a bit of sort of, you know, rambling and song stuff, you know, the, the, the usual ingredients for an episode of Luke's English Podcast. So let's have the short ramble. So, um, well, you know, what's going on in Lepland? Obviously the T-shirts and merchandise thing, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, as you may have heard in the previous episode, uh, I've launched my merch store. And so you can get yourself various T-shirts and mugs and pads and stickers and other things. Uh, tote bags and uh, um, like water jugs and stuff. All kinds of things uh, with different types of Luke's English podcast designs on them. All done by my brother. New ones like funky new designs uh, made by James. And um, so go ahead and check them out if you haven't already done so. Uh, teacherluke.co.uk slash merch. Um, and if you're in the world, right, if you're in the world, probably use the Tea Public store. But if you are also in the world, but you're in Russia or China, Tea Public doesn't send to those countries for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, but uh, but uh, fear not, because uh, Russia and China, you can use the Red Bubble store. And the red part is just a coincidence. Okay, that's, you know, just a pure coincidence. But Red Bubble do uh, uh, ship to russia and china why do we say ship right is it always you know when you know your product your you know your thing has been shipped like amazon will send you an email like you know you buy a book your book has been shipped is it really been shipped it's funny that like sometimes it's just you know being taken by car or something but they still say that it's been shipped it sounds quite cool though as well doesn't it you know your t if you buy a t-shirt uh, from the Luke's English Podcast merch stores, then you will get an email, one of those cool emails saying your order has been shipped. Oh, oh yes. Um, it might not have even been transported by ship, but anyway. Uh, what was I talking about? 
all the different designs. There are some cool designs. There's a Luke's English Podcast Ninja design. There's a There are different sort of ver- versions of the Luke's English Podcast logo. There's a Rick Thompson Report uh, one. There's all sorts of cool stuff. Check them out. Okay? All right. And also, there's a sale on the Tee Public store, which lasts uh, maybe a couple of weeks. So you can, because the store is new, there's a, there's a sale, so you can get some pretty nice discounts. So, so check it out. And don't forget the design competition, the Luke's English Podcast Design Competition 2021. I decided to put the, the, the year at the end, 2021, because it makes it sound a lot more serious and established, almost like it's sort of like the Olympics or something. If you put the year at the end of competition, it just sounds much better. If it was like just the Luke's English Podcast Design Competition, fine. But the Luke's English Podcast Design Competition 2021 makes it sound like an annual sort of like awards ceremony. I don't know. Anyway, the design competition. Um, yes, if you want to get one of your designs on a Luke's English Podcast t-shirt or mug or whatever, then uh, go ahead and send me your designs. Podcastcomp at uh, gmail.com. Okay, that's where you can send your designs. And I want, what is it? Minim- aim for about 300 DPI. So the sort of... The designers will know what that means, but we're looking for a something with, you know, a large number of pixels, please, because it's got to go on T-shirts and stuff. So about 300 DPI. If you go back to the page for episode 742, if you want other specifications, and you've got until 22nd of October to send me your design, and we'll collect the designs. I wonder how many people are going to send things in. It's quite a specific one, isn't it, this? It's quite a challenging one. But don't forget, not only will you get your design if you win, if you'll get your design in the store, in both stores, but also you will win £80. That's right, an £80 cash prize. Serious stuff, this competition. Uh, £80 cash prize. So uh, go to the page for episode 742 for other details, like technical specs about the designs and the images and things. But you've got until the 22nd of October. It's completely up to you to decide what kind of design you think would be appropriate. Remember, we are sort of looking for Luke's English Podcast ninjas, maybe. Uh, maybe dissecting the frog, something like that. You know, the, the sort of... Um, the catchphrases and things that often are, are said on the podcast. Those are some ideas for you. So there you go. Um, oh, uh, it's actually quite chilly. I'm actually quite cold. Uh, it's September and sort of things have taken a slightly uh, chilly turn. So um, it's a little on the cold side. Anyway, um, Luke's English Podcast Premium. Hello, premium listeners. Hello, good, good people of Luke's English Podcast Premium. Um, I, I've got new premium content coming. Okay, including um, what is it? Uh, the the conclusion of uh, series uh, thirty one. Uh, what did Jill say? And also, I'm I'm going to move into the more story focused um, stuff. I think I've been trying to collect as many stories as I can, and I'm looking at that. I'm also looking at ideas around the idea of the text detectives, which is an idea I've had for ages. And text detectives. This is basically about going into just random texts, articles, and you know newspaper text and things like that um email newsletters or uh, adverts that you see online or any th- kind of text going into it and exploring it for english and breaking it all down and learning lots of english from it so uh story things are on my mind text detectives uh, the usual kinds of uh, breaking down conversations and stuff like that more premium content will be coming uh but thank you for your support premium listeners you keep the whole ship the good ship lep afloat you really really do um and so there you go check out also you know obviously my youtube channel is um is still active and stuff i post all my episodes onto youtube and that's a place where people comment and things and you can get the automatic subtitles which are often quite accurate so you could you know make sure you subscribe on youtube don't forget to smash that like button okay guys um so there you go um 
All right. I'm on about 200,000 subscribers on YouTube now. Um, it was only a few months ago that I got that I was at 100,000 and I got my YouTube shiny thing and stuff. And already, bam, we're at 200,000. We doubled it already in, in quite a short period of time. Um, it's crazy, this whole online world. It really is. All the different platforms and the things you've got to sort of do to manage them and stuff. It really is a sort of, it's like a computer game. It's kind of how I see it. It's, it really is like, the whole thing is like a big computer game and you've got to just, it's like one of those management simulators and it's sort of doing the right things at the right time and it's, it's weird. The gamification of, of everything. It's, it's an odd time in which we sort of ride the algorithms, you know, and trying to sort of flirt with the algorithms and get uh, and you know, riding waves. It's like surfing surfing the internet there you go we've come full circle do you remember that when we used to talk about surfing the internet what are you going to do this afternoon that was that used to be a hobby i remember when i was you know when i used to teach english i obviously still do but i used to as well anyway when i taught english in the old days i'm talking about sort of the early days of my career when the internet hadn't fully become the monster that it is today um there would always be you know the usual lessons about what are your hobbies Although that's never a question that people actually ask each other. It's always in English lessons, but we never actually use it in the real world. What are your hobbies? Um, but that was always one of the, it was like, you know, uh, reading, uh, whatever, playing football, surfing the internet was, was like a hobby that you could have back in the early noughties. Surfing the internet could be a hobby. You'd log in, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd log into the internet, connect to the world wide web what was that noise that it would make uh hold on a minute it was, is that an analog analog uh internet connection noise he says typing into uh youtube dial up internet do you remember this hold on Can you- the days when you had to do this to get online. Oh, there you go. The sounds of the internet. Those were the days when you had to dial up, you know, to actually get online. And then you would surf the World Wide Web. Oh, those were the days. Oh, good times. Anyway, such so, so much simpler in those days, it seems. So here we are, pretty much at the end of the episode. I thought that I would sing a song for you because it's been too long and I like to do this on the podcast. And it seems that most people don't mind, except for the very occasional one-star iTunes review. I'm going to sneeze. Oh, my goodness. That was an explosive sneeze that came from nowhere. That that, That almost rivals my brother's powerful sneezes on the podcast. I do apologise. I have to sincerely apologise now, don't I, for sneezing. Any time that the body malfunctions when you're doing a podcast requires very sincere apologies from the um, from the wrongdoer. So I, I do apologise sincerely for my body exploding in such an impolite fashion. So please forgive me, Lepsters. I didn't mean to do that. I mean, obviously, I could edit it out, but... Um, Somehow that seems less funny. I don't know why. Anyway. Oh, there's something like something good about a good sneeze though, isn't there? Oh, you know what I mean? <laughs> I did I did I read once upon a time. This is we're in Tangent City here, okay? We've taken a trip to Tangent Town. So um did I read once upon a time this is a weird tangent, that a sneeze is actually the an eighth of an orgasm. Hold on. Is a sneeze an eighth, eighth, E-I-G-H-T-H of an orgasm? Okay, now maybe I'm insane and I'm the only person in the world who thinks that a sneeze is an eighth of an orgasm or someone, someone once said this or I'm imagining in it. Or I'm imagining it and I'm completely insane. Let's find out. Googling. Is a sneeze... Okay, I'm not the only person. Medium.com. Is a sneeze really an eighth of an orgasm? Oh, hold on. Hold on a minute. (laughs) 
Sorry about that, listeners. Uh, sorry about that little inter- inter- interruption. That's the word I'm looking for. Sorry about the interruption. I had to rush downstairs because my lunch was delivered. Uh, oh, I'm slightly out of breath from running around. I ran down the stairs to try and greet the guy in the staircase. So, yes, my lunch was delivered. I, I ordered a Deliveroo. Deliveroo is a company that delivers lunch to you, basically, or dinner. I cheated today and I just ordered a Deliveroo instead of cooking for myself. I'm too lazy to do it for myself today. So I thought, right, I'll order a Deliveroo. Anyway, where was I? This is full-on Tangent City Uh, here. (laughs) Tangent Town in Texas. Um, Right, so is a sneeze really an eighth of an orgasm? Well, let's see. This is what it says. The amount of endorphins produced by a sneeze... That's endorphins, that's not dolphins, okay? Imagine if every time you sneeze, dolphins were created. Like, this is how dolphins exist. Just every time a human sneezes, bam, more dolphins. No, it's endorphins. These are things, sort of, I don't know what, like chemicals in your brain that give you pleasure and stuff. The amount of endorphins produced by a sneeze is far less than an orgasm, and there is no cumulative effect with sneezing. Snow, so no, not snow. There's no snow involved. So no amount of sneezing is going to feel like an orgasm. Both sneezes and orgasms are involuntary reflexes that feel good and involve erectile tissue. What? <laughs> Sorry? Erectile tissue? How is sneezing? How does sneezing involve erectile tissue? Do you know what erectile tissue is, listeners? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm not sure I know, actually. I'm not going to Google erectile tissue. Oh, my God, listeners, I'm so sorry. How did we get here? I'm really sorry about this. It's so weird. We started with this nice conversation, a good professional and polite, proper conversation about a decent topic. And then I th- I say at the end, OK, I'll have a little ramble. And then here we are, erectile tissue. Um, but you know let's go with it i suppose uh okay let's see what medium.com says according to the popular rumor debunking site snopes.com snopes.com is a great website they debunk rumors and myths this sexual fable started sometime in the mid-90s. The confusion may have originated with American sex therapist Dr. Ruth, who's been quoted as saying, an orgasm is just a reflex like a sneeze. Her statement, when diluted and taken out of context, could be misconstrued as an orgasm is just like a sneeze. But it's a myth, blah, 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 blah. Where's the erectile tissue? <laughs> so, sorry but you know what you know what i mean listeners right i mean let's cut to the chase this is what we want to know about the myth might also have its origins in the fact that both the inside of the nose and the genital area contain erectile tissue you what now obviously the genital area certainly in a man I, I knew contained erectile tissue, right? Because an erection, you know what an erection is, listeners? That's when a man is sort of uh, proud and excited at the same time. Oh, dear. Anyway, erection, right? An erectile tissue is, I suppose, tissue is like skin and stuff that becomes erect. But apparently, the inside of the nose and the genital area contain erectile tissue. What kind of erectile tissue have you got in your nose? So, oh, you know, if you're feeling a bit sort of, (laughs) if you're feeling a bit horny, like, start sneezing. What's going on? I don't know. This, This doesn't make any sense. However, there's, this is the sort of thing I could do in text detectives. You see? See, it's a good idea, isn't it? I must do this sort of thing, like going through a text and all that stuff. So, However, there is no scientific evidence to support the idea that erectile tissues form different from different parts of the body operate in the same way. The ear also contains erectile tissue. And unless you're listening to Beyonce, there's nothing to suggest such a thing as an eargasm exists. What the hell is going on in this in this article? Erectile tissue in your ear? The specific fractional amount of an orgasm supposedly felt when one sneezes is not a definite number. As a kid, I was told an eighth, 
But while disproving a similar myth, Women's Health magazine suggests the figure is one-tenth. Business Insider Australia, who also investigated the claim, interpreted the idea as sneezing six or seven times in a row. Regardless, it's clear the number was never rooted in fact and is most likely one of those inane statistics people throw out confidently at parties to prove a point. So basically, it's bollocks. Um, It's not true, except that somehow there is erectile tissue in your nose and your ears, which I don't understand, uh, and that that's involved in sneezing and also uh, an orgasm obviously involves erectile tissue. So, hmm, uh, rather unsatisfying conclusion, but apparently they are just sort of, um, what's the word for it, reactions, um, involuntary reactions of the body and that maybe something about having an involuntary reaction like that, there's something pleasurable about losing control for that moment, but they are not the same. And it's and it doesn't matter how many sneezes you have in a row, they don't add up. And um, so there we go. All right, good. I'm very glad we cleared that up. <laughs> that was obviously very important that we sorted that out and that now we can move on. I've no idea how we got to this. I'll be completely honest. Here we are talking about all these weird things. I cannot remember how we ended up talking about... That's it, because I sneezed. I, of course, because I sneezed violently. I don't know if I, if I was going to talk about something else, but I sneezed violently. Anyway, it's time to finish, and I'm going to play a song for you, because I haven't played songs on the podcast for a while, and I like to do that. And that's it. Some people like it, Except every now and then I get the occasional one-star review on iTunes uh, by someone who says, you know, please do not sing a song on the podcast. Uh, so if that is you, then you can stop listening now. And you've been listening to Luke's English podcast. You can imagine the jingle has happened. If you're happy to listen to me sing, stick around. Uh, and I'm going to go bye bye bye. Right. And then you'll hear the song and then there'll be the jingle at the end, just so you know what's going on. Okay, so thank you so much for listening. It's been uh, a pleasure to talk to you. It was a pleasure to talk to Natasha as well. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I will speak to you again soon. But for now, it's just time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. So the song I'm going to play for you is actually by Coldplay. Coldplay, they're not my favourite band or anything. Um, Sort of, they're okay. I actually preferred their earliest stuff the first couple of songs that they ever came out with i remember hearing them on the radio quite a lot and so i'm going to play one of those ones it's called trouble and um i think that i will let the song speak for itself so this is trouble by coldplay Spider web is tangled up with me And I lost my head And thought of all the stupid things I'd said And oh no, what's this? spider web and I'm caught in the middle so I turn to run and thought of all the stupid things I'd done and I never meant to cause you trouble I never meant to do you wrong ah well if I ever caused you trouble Then oh no, I never meant to do you harm And oh no, I see A spider web and it's me in the middle So I twist and turn Here I am in my little bubble
singing out I never meant to cause you trouble I never meant to do you wrong And I, well if I ever caused you trouble Then oh no, I never meant to do you harm for listening to Luke's English podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.